Shalom, and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamit in Highland Park at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shemit. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler. Hey, Barry. Salma Shekhar, Long you. Island. Starting up this week, Rabbi Jeremy Kamanovsky on Shechesed. Hey, Jeremy. Well, starting up this week also. <laughs> well, If I make uh, it. If I make it. That's a big if at this point. I hope so. I hope so. We are really, really coming to the end of the whole Torah. We're with Parsha Netzavim, a fantastic, amazing Parsha. Just before we get into the Parsha, I think we ought to talk a little bit about, you know, the division of the Torah into Parshiot, because, you know, it doesn't seem fair. It's, Netzavim gets like, like, it takes maybe 10 minutes to read the Parsha. Kitavo, it took us like a half an hour. Kitetse also. Not to mention, you know, Naso, which is like the better part of an hour, and we're going to be reading Parshiot, you know, in the fall. They go on. So what is going on? What is up with this and the Parshas? Can you give us some some rumination on Parshaology, the division of the Torah into Parshas, Barry? So I, I think the one message is that as we come to the end of the Torah, we recognize that we're not so eager to let it go. And therefore, at the very end, we go practically chapter by chapter. We have five chapters left after Kitavo, and it's four Parshiot. And we're going to go week by week, and we also have the extension because we don't get to Vizot Bracha until Simchat Torah, which is, you know, at least a week after the last Parsha because... It's the ninth of ninth uh, day of Sukkot. And I think it's a recognition that even though we're looking forward to a new year, we're not so eager to let the old year go because part of us goes with it. It's like you're counting down, you know, you, you, you say to your kids, okay, 10, 9, 8, 3, <laughs> two and a half, <laughs> two and a quarter. Do 1.8, 1.7. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I, concur, I concur with, with your meaning, but I just want to, I mean, sometimes I have the experience when I'm really enjoying a book, really, really enjoying a book, I, I just don't want to end it, right? So I kind of take my time at the end of the book, just kind of, you know, lingering on each page. Uh, and, and, I, I, and that's kind of what you're talking about here. There's an emotional attachment. We don't want to let it go, but we do let it go. All right. But the other thing you do with the book that you like is to start it over right away. Well, okay. So that's what we do. So, so, so therefore, one could also argue that the, those who ordained the division of the, of the Torah into Parshas actually had some insight into the calendar and matched up some themes of these chapters with the parsha, I mean, after all, look here we are. Uh, we're we're you know uh, several days, uh, oh, you know, just short of a week from Rosh Hashanah, uh, and um, we are you know what what would have been if we would have been discussing things from last week, like the captive woman and the rebellious child, or um, or other key themes. I mean, in this parsha, Tem Nitzavim. Hayom Kuchem, you are standing here. I mean, those of us who experience the high holidays experience them as a group mass group event. This is a communal event, a congregational event. 
In fact, I think we could argue that it's an echo of the covenantal event, Zichron Truah. This, this is really important. I, I think that there is a, um, in addition to these, you know, experiential or phenomenological descriptions of how it feels to conclude the Torah in these parshiot, I think there's a, an additional thing going on which is close to pshat, which is that, um, that the Torah has a number of like endings. There's a number of major speeches at the end, which are maybe a little bit, um, in a certain sense, a little bit superfluous or repetitive, but they are, uh, they are, all each get their due in the way we, we read it. So Kitavo has a major conclusion to the Torah. It, it begins with that peoplehood ritual of the, of the first fruits. Um, and then Moshe, and we have the, the blessings and curses on Har Grizim and Har Eval, and Moshe stands up and says, there's going to be blessing for this, but I want you to know that the consequences for disloyalty are terrible. And you have, I, the last thing I want to tell you is this major set of curses. And that's how Kitavo addresses the end of the Torah. And then you have Nitzavim, which comes along and says, in a very different vein, this week's parasha says, we are all here. We are committing to this covenant. Everybody in the people, in the past, in the future, the wealthy and the powerful and the not so powerful and the women and the men. And that's a very affirmative. Then you get Hazinu, which is another big downer. Hazinu is another uh, Moshe yelling at the people. And then you get Vizot HaBracha, which is another blessing of the people. So it seems to me that at some level, the Torah, the Torah itself combining um, different kinds of documents has like multiple endings and our way of dividing the parshiot, I, I don't say that it's for that, but it one of the things that it has the effect of is giving each one of those things uh, a bit of a foregrounding, which I find moving. So, so I think I think we can have our cake and eat it too here. I think I think both of these uh, branches of interpretation, that is the the not wanting to part with the Torah, but of course understanding that we're going to start it again, and also the thematic confluence of these uh, ending parsha with the, with the the idea that it's a conscious idea we're we're ending another year of our lives. I, this is this is the genius of Judaism to to play out the story of our lives on an annual basis, consec with with the you know, parallel to the, the story of the Torah. We're living the Torah every year. I mean, I, I you know, we, we're, we're not at Vizod Abracha, but it's it's sad. It's not only sad because Moses dies, it's sad because, you know, we're marking a, another moment in time where we're connecting to the eternity of the people through the the recommencing uh, of, of the Torah. So, so... There's one last thing about, about the, the ending, you know, the, um, there's a, we Ashkenazim don't say it nearly as much, but there's a, a poem called Achot Kitana, a Sephardic poem. It's, it's at least a little bit quoted in the Lev Shalem. Uh, we use it at our, at our synagogue also. The poem is from the 13th century in Spain, and the, um, you know, Israel is, the metaphor is Israel is the, is the little sister. She's battered. She's mistreated. She is, she's suffering. And each of the stanzas of the, of the poem ends with let this accursed year end. Let this year end with all its curses. And then the last stanza is: We're going to return to Zion. We're going to we're going to rebuild the solu solu. We're going to clear out the paths of Zion. And the last 
uh, the last stanza ends, Tachel Shana Uvirchoteha, let the new year begin with all of its blessings. So it's this great Rosh Hashanah poem. And the line of Tichleshana Vikila Loteha, the let the let the year end with all of its curses, really quite appropriate, you know, last year and this year, um, is, is a citation from the Talmud, which in which it says, Why do we read Kitavo just before Rosh Hashanah? We, we read Kitavo, we read the Tochecha, we read all of that rebuke just before Rosh Hashanah to like just put an end to that last year with all of its suffering and just put it in the rearview mirror and look forward to a different and blessed year. So I, I really like the way Kitavo comes just at this at this turn of the year, Nitzavim with its with its vastly more positive outlook about how everybody, you know, it's not up in heaven, we can do this. I really like how it fits just before Rosh Hashanah here. It seems like, it seems to me that it is a, a kind of a, a merging of form and function that we get to say goodbye to all of that disappointment, suffering, and hello to what's before us. So I want to cast it in the optimistic note in a different direction. That the first verse, and then it goes on that this is a vision of the community on Rosh Hashanah. Everyone is assembled before God. And the verse continues, Everyone is here from the highest to the lowest. And in a sense, that's what we used to see pre-COVID on Rosh Hashanah. It's the day when all Jews, figuratively speaking, of course, come to the synagogue to stand before God. And it's a day when we really can ask ourselves, who are we? Meaning, who is our community? And it includes everyone, even those Jews who only come proverbially three times a year, but also the important people, and even the people that are on the fringes of the Jewish community, the Gerecha, And I think that it's a way for us to conceptualize how we want to begin the new year, not just the ending of the old year, which is very important too, but what we have to establish the basis for the new year. But you had a nice, uh, a nice little homily on the word kulchem. Uh, you heard that, I know. So but, but. I heard from Rabbi Jason Vitters, who spoke uh, at my synagogue last night, that Kochem, which we translate as all of you, meaning that all the people are there. But what he suggested is all of you means you bring all of yourself. Oh, that you. what <laughs> Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur demand of us is a totality of our being. And it's a way that we can reorient ourselves because let's face it, most of the year we are fragmented and okay. we rarely focus ourselves as we should. And on Rosh Hashanah, we can begin again. But these people are a snapshot. And, and I'd like you to focus on that lovely verse, verse 14, Ki et asher yeshno po those who are here with us today, before God, Ah, this is such a, a rich verse, you know, it's saying, look, I'm not making the covenant with, with only the people that are standing here. That is to say, the historical dimension of this act will affect all history. I don't know if, you know, if you relate to that in the, in the, sen in the, same, in the same sense, um, 
you know, it's powerful. What what are you, your your takes on that? Well, who are the people that are not here? There's only two possibilities. They're the people that came before us. And in the context of Sefer Dorim, they're the ancestors that died in the wilderness. The parents of the people and grandparents of the people were going to enter the land if Moses ever stops talking. <laughs> or it could be the people who are ahead. And as you suggest, you know, sometimes, especially in America, we think of ourselves as rugged individualists, as if we could stand alone. But the Torah here is reminding us that the past creates obligations for us that we can't avoid or evade, that we are part of a continuum. And when we step into the future, we have to bring the past with us. That is just beautifully well said. It's, it's exactly right. I, I'm going to take a stab and guess that the pshat means that, that what this might have meant to its original audience is that that this is a covenant with our ancestors as well as those present now, the people in the past, um, whether it's the failed generation of the Midbar of the desert or, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. But rabbinic midrash, and, and this does speak to, to me and quite close to the way it speaks to you, Bear, is that it is forward-looking. There's a wonderful midrash that gives the source, and I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners uh, have, have heard it, that you know this refers to the souls of people who would yet convert. Like the, the, everyone was at Sinai and even people who would not be born in Jewish families, but choose to join the Jewish people, th they too are present at this covenant renewal moment, which is quite stirring. Um, I, I do think that Barry put his finger really on, on such an interesting and important point for contemporary American Jews, which is like, we, we really are individualists, even if we're not individualists in the way we live, even if we care about community, we really do prize human freedom and human choice making. And, and it doesn't really go down all that easy to say that you are bound to, you are bound to, you are like, you know, things in the past have a normative influence, have a normative decisive impact on how you live your life. But like, how can, how can the people of the past have an effect on me? I'm a free agent. I can do what I think is best, and I can live the life that I choose for myself. And of course, I like those ideas too. But exactly as you said, I think the claim here is that you have inherited something precious and that it has a, a very, very significant spiritual, ethical, normative gravity on your life, and, and you have to respond to it. And yet, and yet the Parsha speaks at the end to the whole notion of choice. I don't want to jump to it right right. Right now, we'll, we'll leave it hanging for, for a moment. But choice is, is so central to the whole uh, underpinning ideas of, of the book of Deuteronomy. You have your choice here. You have your choice with everything. Yeah, uh, but, but play, you know, in, in pre-modern times, especially like in, in you know, ancient philosophy, in, in Plato, for example, Plato says that people only make bad choices because they are like possessed by a demon. Like, why would you choose the bad? Why would you choose the unethical? Why would you choose? Why would you choose something destructive unless you were kind of out of your mind? And the Gemara has the Gemara says this Platonic idea in a different, different, you know, um, idiom. It says, um, over avera A person doesn't sin unless they have been possessed by some sort of madness. Like it is. I think the choice here doesn't mean 
or might not mean. I choose among the options and I take the one that I think is best. It's like I have the strength to choose the good. Indeed. Okay. So here we go. We got we got uh, a number of very important verses here. Hanistarot ladunai Eloheinu. The hidden things belong to God. Vaniglot. Now the text says lanuul vaneinu. Okay. I'm going to turn to you, Jeremy, on this verse. This verse is talking about concealed matters, sins, concealed transgressions, and and public transgressions. But um, how do we interpret this? So this this line, very well-known line, comes at the end of a a kind of a threat. Um, Some of you will betray this covenant, betray this, this breed that we're making, and there's going to be terrible punishment, and it's going to look like stone by Amora. It's going to it's going to be a devastation, and people are going to walk by and say, "What in the world happened?" And so the people here, um, they worshipped foreign gods, and they were you know punished, and God uprooted them and sent them into exile, and you know that's that's the divine wrath, and the and the sort of coda to that passage of of curse or threat. Is I'll read it. I'll read it as it appears in the Torah without modifying it, and then and then I'll modify it. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, and the revealed things belong to us and, and our children uh, forevermore, so that we may do all the words, so we may, may fulfill all the words of this Torah. So it would seem to be like an interjection, just shot, not not amending anything. It would seem to be a bit of an interjection. There's going to be terrible, terrible punishment if you betray. And the people people seem to respond something like, let hidden sins be the province of God, but we will take care of all the revealed things. We will take care of the things that happen in public life. Lord, please have mercy on us for the for the nistarot, the hidden things, which how could we possibly be, how can I possibly be responsible for the secret things that my that my neighbor does? I don't even know about them. And that's what secret means. Um, and, and so I think that there is a claim, and, and there, this claim is found in the Midrash as well, but there's a bit of an anxiety about, you know, this really strong sense of corporate responsibility. We as Am Yisrael, we as the Jewish people, are responsible for e- keeping each other on the straight and narrow. We're responsible for, for rebuking each other if we sin. But how about the stuff we don't know about? Please, God, have mercy on us for the stuff we don't know about, and we will do our best with the stuff that we do know about. Okay, that's, that I think is probably the, the semantic meaning of the text that we have uh, as it appears. But in, in ancient texts, the style of marking, you know, that something had to be removed was not, you know, track changes with a line through it or, uh, or you know, some Leaks. red pencil. It was to put a dot on top of uh, a word or a letter said that, said that this word doesn't belong. So there are dots on top of the letters Lanu Ulevanenu and the first ayin of Ad Olam. And if you if you read that straight up, um, and you take out the words for us and our children, then the verse reads: The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, and the revealed things, so that we may do all of the words of this Torah. We may fulfill all the words of the Torah. So it's, then it means something like, Oh God, we're in your hands. The hidden things, the revealed things, we want to do our best. But there's yet a third way to go. The the number of dots is a little confusing. Uh, 
So the dots over lanu ulevanenu and the, the next letter ayin of ad olam, you, you can't take away the ayin, then it makes no sense at all. So th that gives us uh, three, six, 10, 11, 11 dots. Well, there's a theory, I actually don't know where this theory comes from, so someone will enlighten me. The 11 letters that might be dotted would be Ladunai Eloheinu. That would give us 11, but that the scribes who wanted to make an emendation, it was impious to suggest that you were taking out the words, Ladunai Eloheinu, for the Lord our God. So they dotted the wrong letters, but they did so in a way to let you know that 11 was the real number. And and the wise, the wise can figure it out. And then the words that are really being removed are for the Lord our God. And then the verse should read like this. The hidden things and the revealed things are our responsibility. Adulam, forever and ever. So we may fulfill this whole Torah. And then the claim is, after this threat, that if the people betray the covenant, there's going to be terrible divine punishment. Then Am Yisrael responds and says, we're in it to win it. We're responsible for the whole thing. The hidden things, the revealed things, we are going to be loyal to the covenant. I th I'm, I'm going to gonna go with Jeremy here. I think that the, that the there is a very compelling case to be made poetically for the word pairs, Hanistarot Vaniglot, without the interruption of God's name, and Lanu Ulvanenu. So there, there's some deliberate poetics going on here. And and of course, we can, we can go on a bit, but I think you've given us a, a very compelling uh a reading, and also I think it, it it heightens the idea of personal responsibility or collective responsibility. That that now we have this covenant; it's ours. And then, of course, you know, you you get that that um, that same theme uh, uh, repeated in the verses at the end, or in the middle, verse eleven. This mitzvah is not far from you. Lova Shamayim, it's not in heaven. And it's not it's not beyond the the horizons. It is It's here with you. It's in your mouth and it's your heart to do it. In other words, this doesn't belong to masters. This doesn't belong to you know savants. This doesn't belong to miracle workers. This belongs to you, and you have responsibility for it. This is and it's accessible to you. And and I know Jeremy has some thoughts on it, but hold there, hold, Barry, you know, the whole idea of, of your accessibility or, or, you know, relationship to the Torah here and, and what is being stated. So one of the things that we like to do is to read verses in isolation. And so if we just take the verse itself and this Tarot Laronai, we could read it as a kind of polemic against Jewish mysticism in a sense. That secret knowledge belongs to God. That's not your avenue of inquiry. You need to concern yourself with Hanaglot, things that have been revealed to you. And the way I would connect it with Lova Shemaimi, that it's not in heaven, is that our locus of life is here on earth. We're not supposed to be chasing after God in heaven. And one of the things to keep in mind is that in Devarim, God is exclusively in heaven. Unlike other books in the Torah, he does not walk on the earth. He doesn't appear here in any dramatic fashion as he has in earlier books of the Torah, because our life is here on earth. God has his abode. He looks down upon us, as we mentioned uh, last week, I think it was. 
And we need to take up the mantle of life on this earth and do what God wants us to do down here and let God worry about what happens up in heaven. Okay. And so that takes us to, to the, the coda of this, of this Parsha. And Jeremy, when you were talking before about, you know, so many endings of, of the book, um, I was thinking like a Beethoven symphony, which is, you know, just bam, bam, bam. There's so many endings to the symphony. And finally, you know, the, the, the release of all the dramatic tension happens at the end, you know, after so many repeated chords, etc. And so here we have a coda uh, at the end of this Parsha, which I think could function as one of the, the ends. And, and it's a long uh, passage, but it starts with, I give you life and goodness, death and evil. And we want you to, as we move on, I, uh, I bear witness, let, let heaven and earth bear witness to you. Life and death I have given to you. Blessing and curse. Choose life, so that you will live, you and your seed after you. To love the Lord your God, to listen to his voice, to cling to him, because he is your life, the length of your days. To dwell on the earth or dwell in the land that God has given to you. And that is the Coda. And the Torah probably could have ended right there with that ultimate statement. And we've talked about it many times, you know, choosing life. And so, so this, you know, functions really as the, I would say, the central theme. I mean, we used to say this all the time at camp, you know, be holy, be blessing, be holy, choose life. It's a, one of the great lines, the great, the great lines, you know. Flashing symbols, it's brilliant. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I, I think that not only I think this could be the end, I kind of think it is an end. And in the collection of ancient Jewish voices, I think the Vizor Bracha and Hazinu and this and, and the Tochicha were all probably intended at some level as an end. And whether it's Moshe Rabbeinu himself, who just couldn't, couldn't quite stop, um, even in his own ambivalence between the, the positivity and the negativity, or or source materials that that you know have, have been brought together. I, I think this is actually the end of the Torah. Can I make one little comment before Barry come chime in here, which is, you know, I, I, we always focus on Ovachart of Chaim, choose life in this verse, but but maybe we ought to focus on Haidoti You know, let's testify by the by the heaven and earth. I mean, if that is not the perfect coda to Breshit I don't know what is, okay? Totally. God has created heaven and earth at the beginning of all time. And now we are testifying by that fact, right? We are holding the heaven and earth as witnesses, right? To the ultimate eternity of, of reality that you, you Pitzkalayid, you little Jew, you, you know, all of us, you have a choice to make. You, your choice is... You can choose life. Now, you know, I mean, you, 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 you spoke before about, uh, you know, the platonic idea here, you know, that, that you, you're not going to make choices that are, that are detrimental to you, unless, of course, you do. <laughs> no, listen, this, this is big. I mean, um, you know, some, some years ago, you know, we, like in the last few years in, in the United States, because of economic conditions and economic inequality and the plague of, drug abuse and stuff, we've we, we started about deaths of despair, you know, suicides and 
and and alcoholism and stuff like that. And um, and a few years ago, I like on uh, on Colnidri night, I, I I talked about the rising suicide rate. This is before I, I don't remember how many years ago, it was, but certainly before COVID, and it was probably still in the Obama administration already. I don't remember, but um, but I talked about like it seems like it ought to be easy to choose life and to love life. And it isn't always. And, and I think we all, we in the rabbinate, um, you know, certainly have known people who have struggled with suicidal ideation. And, and when I gave that to our Torah, the number of people who came to me and talked to me about suicide in their families was really, it was totally notable. So you do have, you do have characters like Yonah in, the Mafia for Yom Kippur afternoon, and Rachel, um, who is portrayed like when she's in her childlessness or infertility, she's like, I want to die. Moses and, himself. And, don't know what's, Moses, Moses himself, I want to die. And you, 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 you realize that like, it ought to be obvious that people always want to live, but it's not obvious. And, and some of these people really struggle with wanting to live. Yeah. It's, so these verses come as a reminder that choosing life Choosing to do the right thing is a process. It's not an event. It's not something that you finish doing. It's something that you start doing and continue to do. And that's why the important part, it seems to me, is that you love God and you listen to his voice and you cleave to him. In order to listen to his voice, you have to love God. If you hate God or you are distant from God, you're less likely to listen to his voice. And only if you listen to his voice can you actually cleave to God. And I think for some of us, we want to be able to cleave to God without listening to him. Mm-hmm. You know, look, there are a lot of ways to be Jewish, as we all know. And we stand for one particular version, the conservative view. And we don't think that other ways are necessarily inferior. It's just not the way that we ourselves have chosen. But it's important that for those who have chosen this way, that there is some kind of discipline involved and some kind of legal framework so that we can give voice to God's voice. We can listen to God and act upon the voice that we hear. Kihu chayecha v'orech yamecha is your life and the length of your days. You know, that, that's a... It's a bold statement. It's a problematic statement. You know, we 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 wish it were only that. So, I mean, it, we say we can't say that with with without the tragic nature of of, of reality. I think that part of it here is how we understand or I mean the length of your days. If we're equating it with long life, then indeed there is a tragic dimension to it. But if we're saying that. God guides our life, whatever the length of our days is, then in that sense, and only that sense, perhaps it doesn't matter whether your time on this earth is short or long, God is still the guide. That's really good because, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit, you know, like the, the phrase long life. Well, by definition, that's relative. I mean, you know, it's, it's relative to homo sapiens and, and their biology. Um, it's not long in terms of history. It's not long, like you know, a, 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 a sequoia tree that lived eighty years. It would be a young tree. It wouldn't be a. It wouldn't be an old tree, right? But a, and a human being who lived, you know, one hundred and fifty years would be like unimaginably old. Um, so I, I really do think that that 
long or short is is just an entirely uh, variable and 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 uh, relative thing. Um, think about like the other idioms. Svayamim, sated with days, satisfied with days, or babiyamim, you came in 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 your 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 old age. Besevatova in good white hairedness, you know something like that. We, we it's not always a long life. It's like sometimes our idioms for you know relatively longer life just they're more about your emotional relationship to the length of your days which i think emerges what from what barry said so i I, it's occurring to me as we're reading these last verses here if we're if we're going to find this as one of the codas of the of of the whole torah what do you make of they get a they get a little redux here. They get a little shout out here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, I find that, you know, it's quite lovely. Because we you know, the the, the story of the people starts with those three. Uh, yes, they are our fathers, and of course we, we include their mother our mothers in in the mix, but but if it weren't for them and it weren't for the covenant and it weren't for their stories and their long life and their clinging to God, none of us would be here. And so maybe there's there's just we're we're giving a little. I think it's kavod. We're giving hakarata kavod to to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, I think it goes even beyond that because our lives are supposed to be the fulfillment of their lives. Yeah. As human beings, their life on Earth has a limit, as all of our lives on Earth have a limit. But we want to live on and we want our descendants to live with part of us in them. And so when we get to the end of the Parsha here with the reference to Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, and as you suggested, Elliot, including the matriarchs as well, it means that we are seeing them as our parents, our ancestors, and that their lives give meaning to our lives. And that's a, a great way for them to live on long after their deaths on this earth. If our own parents give meaning to our lives, and as we, I think, hope we give meaning to our children's lives, I think this is, this is part of the continuity of, of, uh, of the eternity of Torah, the eternity of the Jewish people. But think, think back to one, one small detail in the, in the Jacob story. When, when, um, when uh, Jacob comes to Pharaoh, like after after all the, you know, everything, the Joseph story, and he thinks he's dead and turns out to be alive, and he actually comes back, and now Joseph is, is the big man in Egypt. He meets Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says to him, how old are you? He says, I'm really old, I'm 147. And, but he says, ma'at v'ra'im hayu chayai. My years are few and crappy, okay? My life has stunk. I, it's been bad. It's been bad the whole time. And... And so, at least at one moment of his life, Jacob was really depressed. Okay, and uh, and ra'im. <laughs> it's just it was like the life stinks, and in such small portions. And uh, and <laughs> and now I think it's exactly what you said, Elliot. That um, there's this affirmation of of you, you know it might have been hard at certain times, but look where we are now. You gotta love him for that. You know, it's, it's I, I mean I, I'm inclined the. He, you want it darker. We want it darker. You know, <laughs> it's there's dark. You know, but it's it's like dark chocolate. It's full flavor. Dark wine. It's full flavor. It gives. You know, your life would not be as as meaningful only with joy. <laughs> so, the line that you quote, Jeremy, is the 
the source of the old Catskills joke of the two women and <laughs> on the park bench. One of them says the food here is terrible, and the other says yes in such small portions. <laughs> But what is important to note about Jacob is that he goes on to live another 17 years. Yeah. And he does not think at the end of his life, even though he is accurate in that he does not reach the age of his grandfather or father, that his life has been bad. He is able to bestow blessing on his grandchildren. He is able to bless his children. And I think we could say, even though it doesn't say of Jacob as it did of Abraham, that he died at a ripe old age, that Jacob ultimately did have a fulfilling life. And so it's important that even when we have these dark moments, that we can hope that the darkness will lift and that when it comes to meet our maker, we will do so with a smile, perhaps, on our face. It's such a lovely thought, you know, and it connects in in some way to the the whole sense of the Haftarah, the Haftarah, the seven, the culminating Haftarah of the seventh cycle, the, the cycle of seven Haftarah after Tisha B'Av, which is just filled with elation and filled with the sense that you're not abandoned. Jerusalem, this this city is will never be abandoned. This is, uh, you know, guarded and, and filled with, with glory and it will be a, the place it will be sought after, and so many themes like that in this Haftorah. It is um, a perfect way to end uh, the, the, the cycle of comfort for, uh, for the people of Israel, for Klal Yisrael, and a perfect way for us to conclude our edition of Parsha Talk this week, hoping that everyone enjoys the Shabbat, is ready for a beautiful Rosh Hashanah. We hope to be with you maybe again before Rosh Hashanah. And uh, thank you all for watching, listening to us. We really, really enjoy having you and sharing Torah with you. And from all of us, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.